Everybody get their handshake in this morning and a little time of fellowship. You want to use a hymn though, it's on hymn number 448. Just a closer walk with thee. Hymn number 448. Let's all sing together, first verse. I am weak, but thou art strong. Jesus, keep me from all wrong. I am satisfied as long as I walk. Let me walk close to thee. Just a closer walk with thee. Grant Jesus is my plea. Daily walking close to thee. Let it be, dear Lord, let it be. Through this world of toils and snares. Lord, who cares? Who with me my burden shares? None but thee, dear Lord, none but thee. Just a closer walk with thee. Granted, Jesus is my plea. Daily walking close to thee, let it be, dear Lord, let it be. When my feeble life is old, time for me will be no Just a closer walk with thee. Granted, Jesus is my plea. Daily walking close to thee. Let it be, dear Lord, let it be. may be seated. Our scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 3, and Dave and Karen are going to read that for us this morning, and then we'll have our special music. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. In that state, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared. 
In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and power subject to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that, uh, that we can come to a place today, Father, and we can, we can read your word, Father, how you were with the people in the Old Testament times, Father, with Noah and his family. And I thank you, Father, that we, we can read that same word, how Peter was using this, Father, to speak to the people in his time who were disobedient. And I thank you, Father, that we can come to this place and we can sit in this room and we can hear from your Holy Spirit through our beloved Pastor Steve, Father. And he can use this same verse to speak to us today. I thank you, Father, so much for your living word. Be with Pastor Steve, Father. Help him speak clearly. And just pray, Father, that, uh, that we would hear your word. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. So much 
choir and uh, orchestra and director, soon to be retiring director, from AT&T that is. Only way you can retire from the ministry is uh, to get a promotion. Hey, before we get into the message this morning, a couple things I want to share with you. First of all, good morning. I'm glad you're here. Um, you may have noticed that out in the foyer to the left, there are a couple of milk crates. I still call them those wooden, slatted wooden boxes full of books. Um, I am in the process of culling my library. Sharon, for those of you that are on Facebook, know that, that she, as my wife, is involved in this downsizing thing. So she said, and you big boy, you need to take care of this with your stuff too. So um, I'm going through my bookshelves in my study and um, pulling books out that um, are not where I am right now, what I'm working with. And in case you don't realize this, we all know who buys those books, don't we? You do, through your tithes and offerings, exactly. So I figured you ought to get the first chance, if you'd like any of them, to take them before I go down to the library sale and they sell them for a quarter a piece or something like that. Um, there are missionary biographies, there are devotional books, there are books on different doctrines, you know, like salvation and sanctification, that kind of stuff. And, and there's a bunch of stuff you probably wouldn't be interested in, but I just figured I'd give you the first chance, and then we will take them out to the, to the library and, um, and bless them with them so they can sell them at the library sale. But I wanted you to have first chance. So every week there will be new ones in there, so please feel free to, to grab them. Secondly, next Sunday morning we're going to have a baptism. Miss um, Helen is going to be is going to be baptized with Helen Gedeke, and um, you say, well, now, wait a minute, what about foundations class? That's why you need to be praying for her, because with her work schedule, she can't come to a Sunday night foundations class, so we're going to have lunch on Tuesday from 10.30 until 12.30, and in two hours, I'm going to give her the whole four weeks worth of foundations class, all right? So you be in prayer for Helen, that her brain doesn't just explode um, as I share with her the things that we, that we share in our foundations class. So then she will be eligible for baptism, and she'll be baptized on Sunday morning, which, by the way, is, huh? Your 21st birthday. That's right. Sunday, 16th is her birthday, so we're going to baptize her on her physical birthday and celebrate her spiritual birthday. Isn't that going to be awesome? So we're looking forward to that. Um, oh, yeah, tonight. You notice there wasn't an article on the Welcome Center. Um, I don't know how many of you even know the, the show, or um, I hope you don't watch it, but uh, if you do, don't admit it. Uh, Modern Family, you've heard the show Modern Family? Um, well, Modern Family has a new character, an eight-year-old transgender boy. Let me say that again, an eight-year-old transgender boy. And I had spent the week studying and preparing and uh, thinking about what does the Bible have to say, not just about transgenderism, but about children and, and gender change, about, and I've got some fascinating stuff to share with you, but then Friday night happened. And I was sitting at Denny's at lunch with Reese yesterday when the news thing started flashing on my phone. And I was saying, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And Reese started making fun of me. I said, oh, you don't understand. This has never happened in the history of our nation. When a, a nominated candidate for president would be asked by his own party to withdraw and stand down so that someone else can run a month before the election. And I went home and I prayed and I thought and I prayed. And so tonight we're going to talk about what are we as Christians to do? 
I'm not going to tell you who you ought to vote for. I don't think I have that right. But we're going to talk about the moral, moral and ethical dimensions of the situation that we are facing as a nation. You still have to pray and decide how you feel you should vote. But I want us to be able, and I'm going to try to make it a little bit of a town hall type setting. I know where most of us are going to be at 8 o'clock tonight, okay? But at 6 o'clock, you can be here. We'll be done by 7. You can go home, um, take your nerve medicine, whatever, you know, and then, and then watch an hour of probably some of the most violent theater you'll see um, in, in, in a long, long time. And it saddens my heart that we've come to this point as a nation. But um, I feel like it is my responsibility as your pastor to say, well, let's look at it first as Christians. And um, so that will be tonight. Last but not least, and then we'll pray and we'll have our, uh, have our hear what God has to say to us. Most of you have heard by now that Jerry Dillon was, is at Anderson Hospital having physical therapy rehab for his back surgery, his major, major back surgery he had just a few days ago and suffered a massive heart attack yesterday. Um, he was flatlined for almost seven minutes. And there was great, great in, uh, concern about that. And uh, the cardiologist came in, told us what had happened. They had to put two more stents in and had him back in ICU. And they were taking some images, and we waited another half an hour or so. Went into his room in ICU, and Barb leaned over and said, Jerry, it's Barb, I'm here for you. And his eyes popped open. Because if you know anything about that kind of issue, the question is, will you, you know, seven minutes with your brain having no oxygen. The, the, mer the um, um, operating room surgeon, the chief surgeon, came in and sat down and said, you just need to know, we don't know if he'll even wake up or not. We just don't know. And uh, his eyes popped open, and through that, through that intubation tube, he tried to give her a little bit of a smile. And his eyes closed back, and I walked over and said, Jerry, it's Steve. I just want you to know I'm here, and we're praying for you. And his eyes opened up again. And I've been communicating with, Pat, with, excuse me, with Barb back when Look at you, I say, Pat. Barb, back and forth, and um, on Jerry's phone. She was using Jerry's phone to text me back and forth. And I texted her this morning to make sure it's okay to share that with you and all that. And at 10.04, during the opening song, Out of the Beacon, I got this text. Hey, Pastor, it's me. And I knew who me was. Guess God's not finished with me on this earth. Not sure why. I don't feel like a very good Christian. Get me that book on how to witness to Muslims. He had told me a few days earlier that he knew why God had put him at Anderson, even though it's way out in Maryville, was because the head of the, of the rehab department is a Muslim, a very open-minded Muslim who's been asking him questions about Christianity. And so he said, I need you to get me a book. So I pulled a book off my shelf. I actually pulled it out of one of the boxes back here for him on dialogue with Muslims. And um, to be honest with you, I didn't even think about taking it with me yesterday to the hospital. And in his text, he said, don't forget, I need that book on Muslims. So Jerry Dillon is on the mend to God's glory. And by the way, I did, I did tell him I was going to read that to you. He said, thank all the church for the prayers that went up on my behalf. Well, with that, I think we need to stop and pray, don't you? Let's take a minute and pray together. Father, we love you so much. We know that not every person that we pray for has the same result that Jerry had yesterday. We know sometimes we pray passionately for people and you take them home to be with you. There are some people we pray passionately for and they die in comas. We think about Lisa Chitwood, who still 
was in a coma. All these weeks later, we've almost forgotten about her. Some of the other things have happened since then. But she is still there. Responsive, but not able to open her eyes. Not able to respond physically. Except a little wiggle of a foot or of a toe sometimes. But Father, the thing that that reminds me, and I hope it reminds all of us, is that you are in control. And because you are good, and because you are right, and because you are just, no matter how we may misunderstand what happens in our world, we know that we know that we know that you will always do what is right. I'm so thankful that you put in that word from Abraham way back in Genesis. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? In this case, you have carried Jerry through what could have been a life-ending situation and brought him to where he is today. Anxious to get a book on Islam so that he can talk to his Muslim friends. So, Father, whatever you choose to do in our lives, in the lives of those we love and care for, in the life of our church, in the life of our community, in the life of our nation, we know that you ultimately are sovereign in all things, and we trust you, and we seek your face, we seek your will. May we be faithful. This morning, as we open up your word, I pray that you will speak to us, and as David prayed just a minute ago, that just like Peter's readers when they first received this letter were comforted may we also be comforted through the things that we go through in this life of course in jesus name that we ask it amen if you haven't already done so take your bibles and turn with me to first peter chapter three now for those of you that are long-term attenders members family members of first baptist church you know that we are going through a nine-year process where we are studying in our Bible study hour books of the Bible that we then in turn are hearing preached in the worship hour. And most of the time, 90% of the time, I make sure as much as I can that I'm not preaching from the same text that we've studied in Bible study. But every now and then, I have to make exceptions. Sometimes when the book is small and we're working on it over a long period of time, there's just not enough verses. I would end up preaching out of a little one-verse bridge between two other things and it wouldn't it wouldn't perhaps speak to us and uh, aka first and second peter you know uh, eight chapters in 13 weeks and so there's some overlap with that and then sometimes it's because the theme in the passage and especially when i look at what we do in sunday school although i know the sunday school teachers have absolute freedom to be able to expand as they feel god leading them we just need to take some time and really really dig down deeper and such is the case today I have no doubt that those of you that were in Bible study this morning got a good taste of verses 11 to 22. 11 to 22, 13 to 22. 13 to 22. And, um, but I want to specifically look at those last five verses, 18 to 22, because Martin Luther himself, the great Martin Luther, the great father of the Reformation said, I have no idea what Peter's talking about. <laughs> I mean, he was just flummoxed about what in the world Peter was saying. And I'm no smarter than Martin Luther. But I think there are ways that we can gain even from passages that are difficult. And they oftentimes become much sweeter when we see them pocketed, as this one is, in something that is absolutely beautiful that's wrapped around it. So this morning, as we look at, at this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, I pray that our hearts will be open and we will hear what it is that he wants us to hear. 
Megan was literally at the end of her rope. A young junior in high school and a Christian, she had chosen to live a life that would be honoring to Christ. Almost every one of her friends at school would find any excuse they could to sneak out and drink as much as they could get their hands on without getting into trouble. Some of them had even started experimenting with drugs. They were having casual sex with their peers, with one another just for the physical pleasure of it. But Megan had determined that she was going to live for Christ. And if anything was worse than what was going on with her peers, it was the fact that she, just like here in Waterloo, lived in a, and, and went to school in a school district that was small enough that everybody knew who did and who didn't. There was no keeping that a secret. And everything from the laughing and the teasing and the scorning and the mocking to the notes stuck into her locker between periods, I wish you were dead, I wish you weren't here. Who do you think you are? You think you're better than we are. Megan was at the end of her rope. She did not know what to do. Well, if you're in this room today, maybe you're not a high school student, but maybe you're like Megan. Maybe it's your work. Maybe in your community. Maybe it's your HOA meetings. That you're also faced with feeling like you're at the end of your rope because you are just trying to do what is right and you are being nothing that you could go to HR about, nothing that you could complain, nothing that's illegal against the law, but it is a constant, constant battle with the people around you. Peter has a word for you today. He has a word for all of us. God has a word for all of us through Peter, but especially if that's the situation you're going through. You see, Mortimer Adler told us in that great book, How to Read a Book, which I always laugh when I pull that out because it's funny that you have to read a book about how to read a book. But um, Mortimer Adler wrote this great, great book called How to Read a Book. And he talks about the fact that whenever you start to read a book, what you have to do is you have to find what is the big theme of this book. And that's especially true if you're reading something like um, something out of the 19th century, 18th century, um, Nathaniel Hawthorne, kind of thick, difficult writing. So you've got to find these big themes. And the same thing is true sometimes in the Bible. And so as we look at this passage, what I want us to do is I want us to find what the big central theme is of this passage. And then we're going to talk about things that hold that theme together. And from there, then we'll take just a few minutes to look at the di these little difficulties in the middle and then come back and finish up with that. All right? So let me read for you again the passage. But this time when we read it, I want to leave out the part that is kind of almost uh, parenthetical, as it were. I think it's great that if you have a Holman uh, Bible, I guess probably depends on which version, uh, version to mean, whether it's one column or multiple columns or whatever. But in the Holman Bible that I have, between verses 18 and 19, there's a, a big space, okay? And, and there's also places where they put parentheses. In the Greek language, there are no parentheses, but I think that's a great way to understand the structure of the passage. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read for you and leave out the little sideline that Peter puts in in the middle of the passage so you can see the overall flow. So if we start at verse 18, this is what we hear. Now remember, Peter is talking about why these Christians scattered in little pockets all over Asia Minor should entrust themselves to God as they go through suffering for doing what is right, for doing what is godly, okay? And that's why this, it starts with four, because, okay? At 17, he said, it's better to suffer doing good 
than for doing evil, if that should be God's will. For, verse 18, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. After being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. And then that thought is picked up in verse 22. And now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. And verses 19 to 21 are kind of a parenthetical, kind of a a side note. It's by no means a rabbit trail. We'll see how important it is. But it doesn't really add to the central theme. So when we look at the theme of verses 18 and then verse 22, we see that Peter is talking about why these Christians should strive to endure the difficulties that they go through because Christ suffered he was put to death humanly speaking fleshly speaking but he was brought back to life spiritually speaking in a new resurrected body and then he went into heaven seated at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers all subject to him that is the central theme and beloved that is critically important Don't let yourself get bogged down in verses 19 and 20 and 21 and miss the central theme. He's saying, listen, Christ suffered, he died, he was resurrected, and then he ascended back to his Father and now lives in victory over all spiritual forces that could be arrayed against him. Angels, principalities, and powers. Now, how does that speak to those people in Asia Minor? Well, I think there are two things that kind of hold this together. One is a word and one is a relationship. Let me show you the word. There's one word that Peter has used now, I think, four times in this passage, in in this section, in these first three chapters of his letter. They come again and again and again, and that word is subject or subject, the verb form, subject. Some translations have the word submit, but it's the same word in the Greek language. It starts back at chapter 2, verse 13, when he says in chapter 2, verse 13, that they should submit to every human authority Because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him, etc., etc., etc. So first he says, as Christians, you should subject yourselves to the secular authorities that are over you. And the first person he names names is the person who wanted to see all Christians killed. And that's the emperor. So Peter lays out the ground rules right there from the very beginning. Then we get down into verse 18, and he gets more specific. In chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Household slaves, submit or subject yourselves or be subject with all fear to your masters. That's the passage we talked about two weeks ago, remember? Subject yourselves or submit yourselves with your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel. And then over in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, In the same way, wives, submit or subject yourselves or be subject to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the Christian message, they may be won over without a message by the way their their wives live. So we have three examples of Peter saying, while you're living here in this life, you must understand that you're going to have to subject yourselves and put yourselves under the authority of people who probably don't have your best interests at heart. And they're going to abuse you. They're going to mistreat you. They're going to treat you with disdain. They're going to mock you. And they may even have you beaten, arrested, or yes, maybe even killed. You say, well, that's not very good news to me. Well, it is when you read chapter 3, verse 22. 
Because then when you get to verse 22, which is the fourth time now he's used this word, he says, but let me remind you that when Jesus was ascended back to the Father, he was seated at the right hand of God. Now with all angels and powers and authorities, what? Subjected to him. The very ones, the very spirits that inhabit those people who are making you be subject to them have themselves been subjected to Christ. Now that tells me a couple of things. Number one, it tells me that that boss, that unsaved spouse, that emperor, that president, that governor is not my enemy. They have been deceived. They are living in deception. They believe that their way of living is right and my way is wrong. But that's because they have, their, mind, their eyes have been blinded by the God of this world. The real enemy that I face is the spiritual enemy that is leading and guiding that person to do the things that they're doing to me. Our real enemy is Satan. Not my spouse, not my boss, not my neighbor, not that person in elected authority. It's Satan. He is my enemy. And secondly, and this is a little harder, but I'm not going to get into it now. If you have questions, drop me a text. I'll talk to you about it. Even now, right now, on, on October the, what is day? The 9th, October the 9th, 2016, the spirit that lives in that unsafe person has already been subjected to Christ. This is not some future event. It says at his ascension, when he went back to heaven, he was seated at the right hand with all angels and powers and authorities. Now, whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is the things we go through, although God may not necessarily have planned or desired those things to happen, ultimately still, he is in charge. And if he allows it to happen, it's just like we talked about two weeks ago, or last week. Last week is all about those forces, those people who are listening to one voice, seeing in our lives as we are gentle and kind and compassionate in the midst of being persecuted, in the midst of being abused or misused, they see in us and in our response a testimony for the gospel. God is in control. Don't ever forget that. God is still in control. So that's the word. The word is subject. But now, what about the relationship? The relationship is the relationship that we see with Jesus Christ in this passage. There are, what, one, two, three times that Peter has stopped and pulled Jesus as an example. The first one is all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18. He's talking about them living holy lives and how important it is for them to live a holy life. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. You didn't buy your way into your salvation, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without defect or blemish so he reminds them that your salvation was bought with the blood of christ and so your holy life your separated life your life committed to him is born out of death suffering of christ then in chapter 2 in verse 21 he begins this passage that we just discussed and when he says for you were called to this, in other words, to endure, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then he goes on through and talks about the suffering and death of Christ. We just talked about that passage. Matter of fact, if you read chapter 3, you wonder, well, I wonder if maybe Peter had a little Alzheimer's here. He's already t talked about this issue. But there's a difference in chapter 3. Because you see, both in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, he equates their lives as followers of Christ with Christ's suffering and death. But in chapter 3, he adds one more dimension to, this, to the conversation. Now, it's not just his suffering and his death, but it's also his resurrection and his ascension and his exaltation. So now, 
it's all about you don't just go through your suffering because of what Christ suffered for you. You go through your suffering because of the victory that Christ has won for you. And that is a whole added dimension to why these believers should endure through times of suffering. So with this word subject, we see what what some theologians call the grand reversal. We may be the scum of the earth, the off-scouring, as Paul called it. You know what off-scouring is, don't you? Ladies, you know when you cook that fried chicken and it burns in the pan and you got to get that Brillo pad and scrub and scrub and scrub and then you rinse out that black, icky, burned stuff? That's off-scouring. Great word. Paul said, that's who we are as Christians in the world today. Do you ever feel like off-scouring? Do you feel like off-scouring sometimes today? I do. But a day is coming, and everything will be reversed. And then the relationship with Jesus reminds us that there is a final destination, that while we are going through this suffering, while we're going through this difficulty, while we're going through these trials, we can look beyond that. Even if they take our lives, there is something for us to look forward to that goes beyond what we're going through today. And that's that final destination of resurrection and eternity spent with Christ. All right, that is the big grand theme. You want to just pray and go home now? No, you can't go home yet. Gotta, I got to give me 10 more minutes, okay? Because I want to talk about these two issues, okay, in the passage. And I think it's important that we take a few minutes and talk about them. Because there's two things in here that seem very confusing, and I want, I, I just, just felt the Lord. The Lord said, you know what, Steve, you could just do that, and you could just, just we could close, and we could go to Pizza Hut for a get-acquainted lunch and have a good afternoon. But before we do that, we've got a couple things we need to talk about. First of all, there's this whole issue of verse 19. And we're back in chapter 3. We've got the big theme down in our head, right? We all understand what the big theme is. We endure suffering because Jesus not only suffered and died, he also was resurrected and ascended back to his Father and now has all authority, all power over all spiritual forces. And so we cry out to him for relief. And even if we don't get relief, we look ahead toward our final destiny. Now, number one, who in the world are these spirits in prison and what did Jesus say to them? Well, we're not real sure. But I want to sh- share with you three options. Not so much because I want you to choose one, but because I want to make sure you don't choose one. There are two options that I think have very good weight, and I'm not really sure which one is right, but I think they both can teach some truth. One theory is that when he says, in that same state, now that, remember just at the end of verse 18, he says he was resurrected spirit in his, in his, by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Yes, it was a body, but it was a new kind of body, a body where he could just appear in places. It wasn't the same old physical body he had. They could touch him. He could eat. He was obviously physical, but he also had a spiritual dimension that he didn't have. Same thing we'll have someday when we're resurrected at the end. But it says, in that same state, the Spirit of Jesus, which would be the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, in that same state, through Noah... The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, was able to preach to those people and offer them the opportunity for repentance and, 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 to, and, to, and to believe and trust God before the flood came. That's one theory. That the Spirit of Jesus just means God's Holy Spirit that through Noah was able to share and give opportunity for those people to repent before the flood came. But they did not do so. Okay. Now I have a little hard time with that because I don't know where all the prison stuff comes in. 
You know, I understand this is back before. I understand there's other people talk about the spirit of Jesus. And even in chapter 1, there's this talk about how the prophets in the Old Testament, they prophesied through the spirit of Jesus about things that they didn't understand or things that were going to happen. But that is one theory. That this is talking about people that lived on this earth before the flood that through Noah's preaching had a chance to hear and repent repent, and did not do so. The second theory is that these are actually spiritual beings. These are angels or actually probably demonic spirits who because of their disobedience were put into prison waiting for the final restoration or the final uh, end of this cosmic battle. And that this declaration that Jesus made was at his ascension by declaring to them that the victory now had been won by Christ. Because you've got to imagine, if you, if you just forget, quit trying to play Aesop's fables and make these real beings, they may not be humans like us, but they're still created beings, they were rooting like crazy as Jesus was on the cross that they were going to end up winning this battle. They actually believed that Satan could beat God. And so when he died, there was this huge cheer that went up through the demonic horde. That now the Messiah is gone, is dead, he's defeated. And then three days later they said, oh, my Lanta. It's not what we thought because now this Jesus is alive and alive forevermore. And now all victory belongs to him, all power, all authority. And they, they're sitting in their bondage because of their disobedience and because of their rebellion. Now Jesus declares to them the battle is over and we have won and your destiny is sure. Personally, I like that option better than the other one. Okay. But both of them speak to something, and that is about the power of Christ over all ages. Whether it was the Spirit of Jesus speaking through Noah to those people, or whether it is Jesus, the risen Christ, speaking to these demonic forces, the bottom line is he's still in charge. But here's the one I don't want you to fall prey to. And it's much more popular. If none of you feel this, then you're blessed, because there's a lot of people. And that is, this has absolutely nothing nothing to do with Jesus between his death and resurrection going down into hell and preaching so that people who died before the flood could have another chance to be saved. You would be amazed at how many people believe that. <laughs> Mainly because of one line in the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. Nowhere does the Bible say that Jesus ever descended into hell. The word in verse 19 is not descended. Actually, the, the word just means he went. He, he went. It could be up, it could be down, it could be sideways. He just, he went. Okay? Secondly, where in the Bible do you ever find it said that after you die, you can have another chance to be saved? The writer of Hebrews is absolutely clear. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after you die, judgment. There is no second chance. That's why we stand in pulpits and we go into our businesses and we sit down with people and we try to help them understand that it is not a joke. We say, now is the accepted time. Now, the only moment that we know we have is now. And the reason we are so passionate about that is because we know that once we die, our chance is done. There is no second chance. And even if there were, why would Jesus just have, just have preached to those that died before the flood? What about all the other lost people? Don't they get a chance too? What about the rich man and Lazarus? How come the rich man didn't get a chance to come back and, 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 and repent? You never see it in Scripture. So, beloved, whatever else you may think. I don't know what Jesus did during those three days. All I know is he was dead. I don't know if he was in heaven with his father. I don't know what Jesus did for those three days between his death and his resurrection. But I know what he didn't do. He didn't go to hell and try to preach people to, be, to be get saved. Okay? Because there is nothing in Scripture that would allow that to be a possibility. 
And by the way, you notice, the, you notice the, 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 the way it works. It says he died according to the flesh. He was resurrected by the Spirit. Now he's alive. And it says, and in that state, he declared to those spirits in prison the victory. So it would have to have been something that happened after his resurrection anyway. So that theory, so please, whatever you do, don't fall prey to that false teaching. Second thing, what in the world is all this about baptism in the blood? It says in verse 20, that he made a proclamation to those in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So you're, Pastor, are you saying all this time we've been wrong? As Baptists, that baptism really does save us? Well, it would if you stopped right there. But the Holman very conveniently puts us a set of parentheses because that's exactly the way the Greek grammar is done. It's done in such a way that this little dependent clause that I'll talk to you about in just a second is, is, is explaining something about baptism. But when you jump and finish the sentence, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what saves you, is Jesus' resurrection, not some physical act of being dipped in water. And so what he does is he says, listen, just like Noah and his seven family members were saved through water by the ark, so you, through Jesus' resurrection, are saved, and it is symbolized by you passing through water. That's why I'm so glad you can get baptized next week, Miss Helen. It's going to be fresh in our minds next week. We pass through water. See, listen. One of the things that's important for us to remember is the flood is not a story of judgment. It's a story of salvation. Do you see that? The story of the flood is about that there were only eight people on the entire planet that were godly, and God made a plan to save them. That's the story of the flood. So little people sitting there in in, in Asia Minor struggling, guess what? God will save you too. Okay, little church in Waterloo, Illinois, when the state of Illinois decides, there's, why did we ever give tax exemption to nonprofit organizations? They make as much money as most of the businesses in Waterloo. They should pay property taxes too. And by the way, they should be paying back taxes the day they bought that property. Here's your bill for $32 million that you now owe the state of Illinois for your property taxes. God will save us too. You see, this is a story of redemption. And so what baptism does, and I know, I know, we're good Southern Baptists. Baptism represents the death and burial of Jesus, right? We even say you were buried in the likeness of his death, and then you're resurrected. Well, that's all good. That's fine. That's Pauline. There's no problem with that. But Peter says, hey, can I have one word to say about that too? It also represents the flood that Noah passed through. Because I can guarantee you, you let me hold you under the water long enough, you're going to die. Matter of fact, there's people I've been tempted to do that. No, no, no. But the water represents more than Jesus' burial. It represents the flood that you go into, but then you come out of. And so in the same way that Noah actually went through the flood in the same way baptism is a symbol of us going through the water and coming out a new person. But even Peter was afraid that they wouldn't understand him. And so he puts in that little section in the parentheses where he says, hey, don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand me. He says, baptism does not cause the removal of the filth of the flesh. In other words, you're not made sinless through baptism. So that you don't have to worry about what you do from then on. Quite the contrary. 
Actually, what baptism is, is the pledge or the covenant of a good conscience toward God. In other words, and here's another new thing for you to think about next Sunday when Miss Helen is baptized. That baptistry, that event, that, I'll use the word ritual, physically, humanly speaking, is our public promise to God that from this point on, we're going to live for Him. So that we can have a good conscience before God. Do you ever think of baptism that way? That's why in the early church, they had no problem with Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you believe in your heart, if you, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him dead, you will be saved. The confession was there. There was no walk in the aisle in the 3rd century. There was no walk in the aisle in the 17th century. It was late in the life of the church that we started having public responses to invitations. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that was unheard of. Your public profession of faith was when you were willing to stand up in public and be baptized and declare to the whole world that you now are a follower of Christ. And it wasn't just saying, okay, I'm perfect now. I'm good. It was like, no. This is saying, I have a new covenant. I have a new promise that I'm going to live for him who died for me. Okay. So now you see how beautiful this is when you wrap it around that big theme. Jesus Christ, who suffered and died and was resurrected and exalted in ascension to his Father, has power over all of creation. Even in Noah's day, he was in control. Even in the first seven days of creation, all things were made by him. Jesus has been in charge from the very beginning. And it's, we're signifying that through the covenant we make with him through baptism. So where does that leave us? Well, we're back to where we started. And that is that we need to remind ourselves that when we go through difficult times, number one, I don't think there's a single one of us that will ever even begin to suffer as believers the way Christ suffered. I mean, really? We sit and we complain because we didn't get the promotion because we were a Christian? And Christ was beaten to the point that he didn't even look like a human. For you and for me. So he suffered for us. He died for us, but it didn't stop there. Then he was resurrected and ascended back to his Father in glory and might and power. And he is the one that says, you must follow me. And yes, you may be subjected to some pretty rough things while you're here, but I got news for you. The spirit that lives in that one that is making you be subject to them, there's going to be a grand reversal someday, and there'll be vindication. I don't mean the revenge to that person, because uh, I hope that person will come to Christ, but vindication where all of the wrong will be made right, and so endure. Well, what about Megan? What does Megan need to do? Well, I wrote down four or five things. I just want to close with this. Number one, Megan can say, and if your name isn't Megan, literally, maybe you're in a Megan-type situation, abused, taken advantage of, Number one, Megan can say, I will not conform to the sinful habits that I see around me. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to be faithful and obedient. Number two, I will remain faithful to the teachings of Jesus by living faithfully and obediently. Number three, I will endure lonely nights and few friends. Number four, I will find my friends and those who seek with me to be obedient. That is why, listen to me. This is why it's so important for your children and grandchildren to be in God's house and be in Bible study groups and be at prayer room on Sunday nights. And, be, and again, you know me too well 
not to know that I don't believe you're a better Christian if you come to church four times a week instead of one time a week. But you need to make sure that your children have the opportunity to build, build, build relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. It is critically important. Where are the Flatleys? Are the Flatleys here? They may have had to go home. One of those was getting sick. But every time I see their little boy and Gracie Candrell running around arm in arm, I'm going, this is what the church is all about. At two or three or four years old or five years old, they're already beginning to make friends with each other. So when they get to high school and one of them is being abused and taken advantage of, they have someone to run to and say, pray for me. Don't you want that for your grandchildren? Don't you want to know that there's somebody else at that high school that says, if you have a problem, you just text me and I will pray for you. It is critically important. And not just for them, but for us too. So Megan can say, I will do that. And then, number five, I will look forward to the day when God shows that faithfulness is a greater virtue than acceptance. You see, we live today to be accepted. Our kids don't learn this by themselves. They learn it from us. You just need to be accepted. Just fit in with the crowd. Go along to get along. But there is going to come a day when God will show us that faithfulness is more important than acceptance. Now I ask you, which side of this fence are you on? Are you going to stand and be faithful and obedient because you know a great reversal is coming? Or are you going to knuckle under for the sake of acceptance and getting along? Only you can answer that question. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a passage that on the surface looks a little difficult, but really when we think about it, it's really pretty clear. Your son, our savior, did not become our savior at the cross, not become our savior in the empty tomb, not become our savior on the Mount of Ascension. He was our savior before the first click of the clock ever began. He has been our savior from the foundation of the world. And he has always always been in control. So Father, when we're going through those difficult times and it seems like Satan is having a heyday, remind us to put our trust in you. Remind us that you are not asleep. Remind us not just that Jesus died for us so we should be willing to die for him, as true as that is, but that Jesus lives for us so that we can live for him. And that there will come a day when all of the wrongs will be righted. All the scales will be balanced. Because you are just and you are righteous and you are holy. But until that day comes, Father, may we look beyond the circumstances in which we find ourselves today in this moment. May we look ahead to what Christ has waiting for us on the other side of that diaphanous veil that we call death so that we will know with him what it means to live in victory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Now you may be here today and you're wrestling with your relationship with God. You believe in him. I find very, very, very few people that honestly say, I just don't believe there is a God. I think it's all made up. I mean, there's a few, but 95% 
said, well, sure, I believe there's a God out there somewhere, but he didn't really care about me. He's just some force or whatever. You may even believe in Jesus. You may believe that he was a great guy. You may even believe he was the son of God. What you're having a hard time with is this idea of surrendering your life and letting him be in charge of your life. Because you kind of think of Jesus like you think of Martin Luther King or, 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 or some other great figure in history, Abraham Lincoln or something that was a great example and then died. And so we read books about him and we try to emulate him in some ways. And that's what we think about Jesus. We don't understand. This is not just some human being. This is a spiritual being. This is God wrapped up in flesh, living among us to provide us with salvation so that we could have a relationship with God that would carry us through whatever we go through in this life. I got news for you. If you're not a believer, the minute you decide to surrender your life to Christ, guess what's going to happen to you? Your life will get harder. Christians, would you tend to agree? On a temporal level, your life gets tough. Spiritually, though, there's no comparison. Because you're not feeling like you're in a little boat by yourself out in the middle of this huge ocean. You suddenly not only have a God who is with you, you have a whole team of other people, and we're all pulling together, and we're praying for each other, and we're looking beyond the temporal things. So if you're struggling with that right now, let me just commend to you a very simple and yet life-changing process. And that is to say, I cannot control my own life. I'm not doing a good job. I, well, I'm, I'm failing. I need God in control of my life. I need to surrender my life to Him. And if you're ready to start that process, I would love to sit down and talk with you about how you can do that. But the way to start that is when we sing, just to come down here. We're just going to be singing. Come down here. Let me shake your hand. Let me pray for you and say, hey, we need to make an appointment. We need to get together and talk about this. And I would love for you to Maybe you've already done that, but you've never made it public. You've never told anybody about it. You say, you know what? I realize now that until I get in that baptistry and I make it like, like, like a Helen's going to do next week, it's not, I mean, it's, you're saved, don't get me wrong, but you're not really, it's kind of like, well, we'll just live together, but we won't get married, or we'll go, we'll go sign some paperwork at the courthouse, but we're not going to have a wedding. We don't want anybody to know that we're married. Really? I got to tell you, when Sharon and I got married, I want everybody to know. I want everybody to know. This is my wife. I love her. I'm proud of her. And your baptism is like that. It's your public declaration that you are now a follower of Christ. You need to do that. You've not done it. There may be other things. You may be looking for a church home. You say, I need a place where I can grow. Well, with God's help, we're doing the best we can. Okay? We're not the biggest. We're not the flash. We're not the fanciest. But we are faithfully committed to learning God's word and what he has to say to us. And we'd love for you to come and join us. That's where God's leading you. Whatever you need to do. You may have another issue you need to come and pray about. Whatever's going on. Somebody you're praying for. Whatever's happening. You can do it right now. We're going to stand together and sing. I love this song. It's I Will Abide and Go to Jesus. It starts out, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to help you, full of pity, love, and power. Now, anybody in the room not a sinner? Then guess what? This isn't just written to people that aren't Christians. This is written to all of us. All of us. Come to me. And whether you come physically down an aisle or whether you come spiritually as we sing, you need to say, Father, I am a sinner and I've gotten away from you and I just need you to restore me again to a good, right relationship with you. Okay. Whatever you need to do, let's do it while we sing. Let's stand together and sing together. You come, I'm going to be praying for you. Whatever you need to do, you do it now. Come ye sinners, poor and